Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the audio edition of the Weekly Roundup, where we run through some of the key trends and headlines that pertain to the asset and wealth management space across Singapore, Hong Kong, and mainland China. This week, we are looking at developments and events which occurred across the week of June 6 through 10 in 2022. Let's dive in. Starting off looking across the Asia-Pacific region, the asset reports that APAC fund managers wishing to access the European Union investor market may find compliance with a recently issued European Securities and Markets Authority briefing quite challenging. The briefing was issued on 31 May 2022 and will come into effect on 1st August of this year though the specific requirements are part of the SFDR, which took effect in March 2021. The briefing requires all authorised fund managers in the EU to integrate sustainability risks into their portfolio and risk management processes for USITs and AIFM funds, regardless of whether or not the funds are marketed as being sustainable. As the majority of APAC fund managers offering funds in the EU are generally small, they may lack the resources of larger fund houses which already have tools in place to provide the relevant assessments. How APAC fund managers respond to this will be interesting to see. Next up, a recent report by Essentia, a global professional services company, has provided some interesting insights on the future of wealth management in Asia-Pacific. The report, based on two surveys totaling nearly 4,000 respondents across investors and financial advisors, has the following key findings as per Accenture's press release. First, APAC assets under management is expected to nearly double by 2025, with revenues among wealth managers increasing 60%. Second, Over half of APAC investors already hold digital assets, and a further 21% expect to invest in them by the end of 2022. The asset class is currently the fifth largest allocation among surveyed investors. Despite this, over two-thirds of wealth managers have no plans to offer digital assets. Third, 70% of investors have invested or plan to invest in ESG products or assets. The top three barriers to this are the complexity of understanding ESG parameters, insufficient data and information, and the limited selection of available ESG products. Fourth, there is a gap between the services investors want and what wealth managers provide with clients having more input in the financial advisor selection process, leveraging open banking to enable wealth managers and third parties to share data, developing wealth offerings that naturally evolve as clients enter different life stages, and offering a more personalized service, including through automation, being the five main service gaps. Fifth, wealth advisors are spending half of their time on non-revenue generating activities, using as many as five applications across each activity. Nearly 80% of advisors 
said a one-stop platform to bring all the different applications together would improve their efficiency, with research suggesting that efficiency could improve by up to 700% over three years. Finally, less than half of investors are satisfied with their primary wealth manager, despite over 90% stating that their investment expectations were met or exceeded in 2021. Ms. Nicole Bodak, Accenture's capital markets industry group lead for growth markets, stated that, quote, Investors are looking for new products and advisory services as they grapple with market volatility, longer life expectancies, and the plethora of investment information available online. End quote. For wealth managers to win in this space, they must quote, reimagine the client experience and differentiate themselves in key areas, including digital assets and ESG. Wealth managers will need to find a balance in their advisory offerings between effective human relationship management and smart, automated systems that can generate insights for clients and financial advisors. End quote. Investor respondents worked with at least one wealth management firm and had investable assets ranging from $100,000 to over $5,000,000. Respondents for both surveys were from mainland China, Hong Kong, India, Indonesia, Japan, Malaysia, Singapore, and Thailand. Moving on, Reuters reports that Citigroup, an American financial conglomerate, plans to hire circa 3,000 staff across its institutional business in Asia as it increases its presence in that sphere whilst it retreats from the retail space. The new hires will work across investment, corporate, and commercial banking in a wide range of roles. The majority of the roles will be in Hong Kong and Singapore, though India, South Korea, China, and Australia will also see increased headcounts. A spokesman for Citi stated, quote, Despite exiting retail banking outside Hong Kong and Singapore, this region remains front and center of Citi's global strategy. We have been in Asia for 120 years, end quote. The increase in the institutional space follows an announcement that it will seek to hire over 4,000 technology-focused staff globally to assist institutional clients with online services following the COVID-19 pandemic. Despite its retreat from the retail space globally, Citi has assets of circa 200 billion US dollars across Asia, and has stated its intention to grow client assets by 150 billion US dollars by 2025, an objective which it is, quote, on track, end quote, to achieve. The bank has also stated it will hire 2,300 staff for its wealth management division, with a significant portion of these being deployed to Hong Kong and the Greater Bay Area, as reported in previous episodes and it has so far hired 5,500 junior staff in its stated endeavor of hiring 6,000 across Asia by 2023. Citi is not alone in these endeavors, with other financial institutions such as HSBC and Standard Chartered, two British financial institutions, publicly stating their plans to hire thousands of staff across the region, 
as they position themselves to tap into growing Asia-Pacific opportunities. Moving on, CityWire Asia reports that a survey from St. James Place, a wealth manager operating in the UK and across Asia, showcases the need for early retirement planning among Hong Kongers as rising financial pressures, economic uncertainty, and the need to support aging parents and young children begin to make themselves felt. Of this group, aged between 25 through 54, 68% reported that they believe they are responsible for financially supporting their parents, and 74% agreed that investing in their children's future puts pressure on other areas of their finances. With some forecasts reportedly showing the elderly population of the territory reaching 35% by 2048, St. James Place believes that this indicates, quote, families with multi-generational needs will continue to come under pressure to meet the financial needs of an entire family, end quote. This trend mirrors similar ones seen in other jurisdictions, with the affected demographic group dubbed the Sandwich Generation. The survey was undertaken across 1,360 residents of Hong Kong in February this year and 1,420 in March. All respondents were aged between 25 through 54, had personal investments in financial products and property, and were from households with minimum annual income of 400,000 Hong Kong dollars to 1.5 million Hong Kong dollars. Next up, UBS, a Swiss bank, in its latest global family office report, observes that family offices in Asia have several key trends. Namely, alternatives account for 35% of asset allocation. This is divided among direct private equity investment, 14%, private equity funds and fund of funds, 5%, private debt, 2%, hedge funds, 3%, and real estate, 11%. Equities accounted for 33% and fixed income comprised 15% of asset allocations across developed and developing markets. Next, growing overall wealth slash estate was the highest priority for 79% of APAC family offices. Maintaining the overall wealth slash estate, supporting generational transfer of wealth, giving back to society slash philanthropy, and diversifying away from the operating business rounded out the remaining top five, with 33%, 30%, 27%, and 24% respectively. These findings largely mirrored those among global peers. Next, the top concern among APAC family offices was valuations across asset classes at 23%. Global geopolitical circumstances, the family offices operating company, liquidity tapering slash higher rates, and rise in inflation rate comprised the rest of the top five, 20%, 17%, 13%, and 10% respectively. Next, regarding sustainable investments, 53% of APAC family offices have them, with 80% believing that sustainable investing will outperform or be in line with the overall market. Finally, when it comes to digital assets, 24% of respondents are invested or were considering investing in cryptocurrencies, and 18% are invested or are considering investing in non-fungible tokens. Other reported trends include rising costs, with 44% of APAC family offices anticipating rising upwards pressure, 
increased allocations towards alternative investments, with 40% of Asia-Pacific family offices planning to increase direct private equity holdings and 18% planning to increase allocations towards private equity funds, and there was a substantial home bias among APEC family offices, with 55% of assets invested across other APEC markets. The survey encompasses responses from 221 single-family offices who manage aggregate assets of 258.4 billion US dollars. Moving on, Asia-Pacific investors' appetite for products which focus on a thematic approach to ESG investing have gained popularity and momentum, as reported by Ignites Asia, citing data from Broadridge, an investor communications and technology-driven solutions provider. Broadridge notes that thematic sustainability-focused funds across 13 APEC markets saw inflows of 5.18 billion US dollars over the first quarter of 2022. These products are now the largest type in APEC, with total assets of 88.26 billion US dollars at the end of the first quarter of 2022, up from 44.68 billion US dollars over the preceding 12 months. This compares to products which follow an integration or engagement approach to ESG, which had aggregate assets of 47 billion US dollars at the same time, up from 39.1 billion US dollars over the 12 months prior. A large part of the success for thematic products is from rising demand from younger investors who have protecting the environment and climate change among their top concerns. This contrasts with integration or engagement products, which face challenges in the form of, quote, unclear standards and criteria, end quote, and the, quote, authenticity of underlying ESG investments, end quote. Despite the market differences in success, Broadridge notes that overall assets across funds of all types in APAC have increased since 2021, with China, Australia, and Japan at the top with assets of 61.6 billion US dollars, 49.8 billion US dollars, and 39.5 billion US dollars respectively. The report comes as individuals and investment firms across the world are facing increased scrutiny and in some cases arrest on claims that they are greenwashing their products, essentially giving a false or misleading impression or information regarding the ESG or sustainability credentials of an investment product. A prominent example of this is the raid by authorities on the offices of DWS, a German asset manager formerly part of the Deutsche Bank Group. Whether we will see such raids eventuate across offices in Asia-Pacific remains to be seen. And now on to Singapore. Bloomberg reports that Anext Bank, a digital bank backed by Ant Group, a Chinese fintech conglomerate, has launched its operations in Singapore, with the announcement coming shortly after that of Greenlink Digital Banks that it had commenced operations, the first of the four licensed digital banks to do so in the Lion City. Anext Bank will provide financial services to micro, small and medium enterprises, focusing on those with cross-border operations. Bank accounts will reportedly be available from the third quarter of 2022, though interested parties can register their interest on the entity's website now. 
The bank is one of two entities which received a wholesale banking license, enabling it to proffer services to small and medium enterprises and other non-retail customers. The remaining recipients of the digital banking licenses are expected to launch this year. Many will be watching the performance of Singapore's digital banks given the significant presence of traditional banking institutions in the city-state. Further, whether the digital banks in the Lion City mimic the growth and development of those in Hong Kong, a comparable market, or whether they forge their own path will prove interesting to see unfold. Next up, The Asset reports that Dallas, a Singapore-based robo-advisor, has formed a partnership with Partners Group, a global private markets firm, to provide access to private equity deals for high net worth investors and family offices for lower fees. Accredited investors will be able to invest in a flagship private equity fund of Partners Group with minimum investment of $100,000 and with no subscription or redemption fees. The CEO of Endowas, Mr. Gregory Van, noted that despite a deep interest in alternative investments, access via traditional channels often meant obstacles such as illiquidity and complicated cost structures. The head of Private Wealth Europe and APAC at Partners Group, Mr. Christian Wicklang, stated that they were looking forward to, quote, providing Endowas' private wealth clients with exposure to our transformational investments and therefore helping to further democratize the private markets industry, end quote. The number of accredited investors at Endowas reportedly tripled between April 2021 and April 2022, indicating the appeal of a strong digital platform beyond the mass retail segment. Investments in alternatives have also exploded, with Prequin, an alternative funds data provider, noting that private capital assets under management across APAC was forecast to reach $6 trillion US dollars by 2025. The pool of accredited investors in APAC is also expected to increase substantially, with data from Knight Frank, a global property consultancy, forecasting the region to contain 24% of global ultra-high net worth investors by 2025, up from 17% in 2015. Moving on, Singapore has established a framework for issuing public sector green bonds, detailing the city-state's plan for proceeds, evaluation structure for eligible projects, and post-issuance impact reporting, as per statements from the MAS, Singapore's financial regulator and central bank, and the Ministry of Finance. The framework has been designed with the following principles in mind. First, alignment with internationally recognized market principles and standards. The framework is developed and structured in alignment with the core components and key recommendations of the International Capital Markets Association Green Bond Principles 2021 and the ASEAN Capital Markets Forum ASEAN Green Bond Standards 2018. Second, stringent governance and oversight of project selection and allocation of proceeds. The second Minister for Finance will chair the Green Bond Steering Committee, which assumes overall responsibility for proper governance and implementation of the framework. Further, the Singaporean government will commit to annual post-issuance allocation reporting and impact reporting on environmental benefits. Finally, technical screening to evaluate and identify green projects. The eligibility criteria 
for the green categories have been developed with references to internationally recognized market principles and standards, such as the ICMA Green Bond Principles and the Climate Bond Initiative Taxonomy and Sector Criteria. Proceeds from green bonds issued under the framework would be eligible for deployment across eight areas, including renewable energy, energy efficiency, green buildings, and clean transportation, among others. Singapore has announced it will issue up to 35 billion Singapore dollars of green bonds by 2030, across the government directly and its statutory boards. Next up, Lioner, an integrated insurance, trust and family office consortium, is expanding to Singapore after establishing itself in Hong Kong in November last year, as reported by Wealth Briefing Asia. Lioner states that its integrated offerings enable it to broaden the coverage offered to high net worth investors, family offices and other high-end clientele across Southeast Asia, with Mr. Andrew Chan, a partner at Lioner, stating, quote, Many high net worth families are facing significant business succession needs and challenges, end quote. Along with noting that Singapore possessed many advantages for family offices and wealth management entities, in addition to numerous industry and government initiatives to promote Singapore as a location of choice for high net worth investors and their wealth management structures, as covered in previous episodes. Moving up to Hong Kong. The South China Morning Post reports that, following listing rules with effect from 1 January this year, women may fill between 800 to 1,000 new board seats in the coming years, citing estimates from an executive search and consulting firm. The relevant changes will force listed companies whose boards consist of only one gender and at least one-third of the 2,500 listed companies in Hong Kong at time of recording to introduce gender diversity targets and timelines, in addition to disclosing gender ratios and diversity plans across their entire workforce. Companies are being advised to create special developmental seats in order to onboard and develop independent non-executive female directors. The estimates come as several foreign asset managers with a history of gender and racial policies have stated that they will vote against the re-election of directors responsible for board nominations where there is no female representation at board level, or that they will vote against board members which lack either 30% or 15% female representation, as covered in previous episodes. A 2019 report by McKinsey, a global management consulting firm, which was referenced by the South China Morning Post, indicated that there was a strong correlation between the gender diversity of executive teams and the financial performance of companies. However, when looking at the research methodology for the paper, McKinsey notes several limitations regarding the use of data to arrive at this conclusion, namely that correlation does not equal causation, and McKinsey explicitly states they are not asserting a causal link between the factors and that they cannot definitively state what drives the correlations they have found, and that it is possible that instead of greater gender diversity leading to improved financial performance, it may be that companies with stronger financial performance are able to afford greater levels of diversity, though McKinsey explicitly notes that they feel this is unlikely in practice. Further, a judge in California has recently struck down a law requiring mandatory quotas of women on the boards of companies domiciled in the state, 
In their ruling, the female judge stated that the law was unconstitutional and violated the right to equal treatment. Further, the judge noted in her ruling that, quote, the state could not provide any evidence of a specific corporation that discriminated against any woman and would have been subject to the law, end quote. If the gender-based requirements remain in Hong Kong, how long until the territory can expect racial or other arbitrary measures to be applied as well? Moving on, the SFC, Hong Kong's Securities and Futures Regulator, is cautioning investors over investing in non-fungible tokens as per a statement on the regulator's website. The warning notes that, whilst investment in NFTs has increased in popularity in recent years, they, along with other virtual assets, are, quote, exposed to heightened risks, including illiquid secondary markets, volatility, opaque pricing, hacking, and fraud, end quote. Accordingly, the SFC warns that, quote, Investors should be mindful of these risks, and if they cannot fully understand them and bear the potential losses, they should not invest in NFTs. End quote. The statement goes on to note that whilst many NFTs fall outside its remit, those that are a genuine digital representation of a collectible, for instance, there is a subset which crosses the line and comes under their purview, namely, those which are fractionalized or structured in a form similar to securities, as defined in the Securities and Futures Ordinance, or interests in a collective investment scheme. The warning follows statements made in January this year by both the SFC and HKMA, Hong Kong's central bank and one of its financial regulators, which address investor protections for those seeking to invest in digital assets, as covered in previous episodes. Next up, Ignites Asia reports that Invesco, an American investment management firm, and Value Partners, a Hong Kong-based asset manager, have confirmed they have no immediate plans to participate in the long-awaited ETF Connect scheme between Hong Kong and China. The costs involved in building a platform, bringing the necessary talent and skills to Hong Kong, and other costs involved to launch exchange-traded funds in a competitive environment were the main reasons cited for the decision. An expansion in the scope of the ETF Connect to include products which can provide access to ETFs which track global markets would be ideal, as many global asset managers with operations in Hong Kong have no ETFs listed there. Eligible products must have at least 1.7 billion Hong Kong dollars in assets, with their underlying investments being Hong Kong listed shares. Whether the launch of the Hong Kong China ETF Connect after circa six years of delays, breathes life into Hong Kong's somewhat moribund ETF industry remains to be seen. Moving on, the South China Morning Post reports that Mr. Eddie Yue Waiman, CEO of the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, will welcome representatives from some of the top global financial institutions, including HSBC, Standard Chartered, Citi, and BlackRock the first two being British financial institutions and the last two being American financial institutions, to a summit in the territory in November in an attempt to stem the outflow of talent from the special administrative region and help it maintain or reclaim its status as a global financial centre. More than 100 individuals across banks, fund managers, 
and other financial executives have been reportedly invited to attend the two-day event, in which one day will be held behind closed doors before a public forum on the second day. The HKMA has promised to, quote, try its best, end quote, to alleviate quarantine and other travel restrictions, though it currently has ruled out waiving quarantine requirements for attendees, possibly as a result of backlash faced last year when qualifying individuals were granted a quarantine waiver. Only 93 of the 399 applicants were successful in their pursuit of a waiver. One stated goal of the event would be to help rebuild Hong Kong's image as an international financial center, an image which has taken a beating in recent years, as covered in previous episodes. Hong Kong's outgoing chief executive, Ms. Carrie Lam, stated in an interview that the easing of border controls would help rebuild the image of the territory in this regard, leading to speculation that moves may be imminent, possibly enacted before Ms. Lam departs her position on 30 June 2022 when her five-year term ends. Potential measures floated include lowering the hotel quarantine period and allowing for home quarantine. Further, the APEC CEO of Two Sigma, a New York-based hedge fund, has stated that people should not bet on Hong Kong losing its status as a global financial center, noting that the special administrative region has three competitive advantage over other rivals in the region. These are a close connection with mainland China, constantly improving infrastructure, and a large talent pool. Though recent figures show that the third point may not hold much longer, as locals and foreigners alike desert the city in the tens of thousands, as covered in previous episodes. Supporting this statement, a recent report from Boston Consulting Group, a global management consulting firm, predicted that Hong Kong would surpass Switzerland as the world's largest hub for cross-border flows. These flows will likely receive a boost following the inclusion of exchange-traded funds into the Stock Connect program between Hong Kong and mainland Chinese bourses, the rules and regulations for which are expected to be finalized in the coming months. China has also announced that it will raise 23 billion RMB in yuan-denominated treasury bills in Hong Kong over 2022, the 14th year such a sale has occurred, but the largest issuance in recent years, in order to boost the territory's credentials as an offshore RMB center. How these initiatives and forecasts influence the attitude of global investors will be revealed come November. Also, in what is undoubtedly a totally unrelated matter, the, at least formally, iconic Hong Kong Rugby Sevens have been scheduled to take place on November 4th through 6th, starting two days after the proposed financial summit ends. No doubt rugby fans and international financiers alike are hoping both events eventuate and are not punted to touch. And now on to China. St. James Place is also looking to enter China's recently reformed pension space, either directly or via a joint venture, as reported by the South China Morning Post. This follows recent developments, which have opened the third pillar of China's pension system, encompassing private pension products, a move which is expected to see a reported annual AUM increase of 120 billion RMB, as individuals can deposit up to 12,000 RMB per year into a personal pension account, which can
can then be invested into eligible pension products. The opportunities presented by these developments were expressed by Mr. Matthew Deeprose, head of business at St. James Place, Hong Kong, who stated that the growing population and wealth of China, along with the challenges the aging population would face, were a, quote, very attractive market, end quote, for them. And that they were looking at the market, quote, very closely, end quote, as, quote, China is the biggest market opportunity, end quote. Mr. Deeprose further went on to say that St. James Place would consider entering the market directly or via a joint venture in the future. St. James Place may be waiting to see how recent moves by other foreign players in the private pension space eventuate, with BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, recently receiving approval to establish a wealth management unit, which raised 157 million renminbi in assets for its first pension product. Though it was noted, this fundraising was small compared to the 16 other private pension products in the market, which collectively raised 42 billion renminbi across 165,000 investors. Aggregate pension products in the market totaled a reported 649, with assets of 1.96 trillion renminbi as of end March 2022, highlighting the potential in this space. And next up, Bloomberg reports that Credit Suisse, a Swiss bank, is postponing the target date for the launch of its locally incorporated bank to 2024, pushing it back by one year. This would be the second postponement since the project was announced two years ago. Slow licensing processes and questions from senior bank executives on the wisdom of pouring resources into such a project during a time of COVID-19 lockdowns and restrictions across many cities in China are the reported reasons for the delay. Since 2020, Credit Suisse has gained control over its securities business in China, as have many other international brokerages and financial institutions, and in 2021 stated it intended to triple its headcount in the Middle Kingdom over the next few years, hiring more than 200 staff last year. Whether it continues to expand its presence in China or retreats remains to be seen. Next up, Ignites Asia reports that AXA Investment Management, the investment management arm of the French insurer, has received permission from Chinese regulators to open its 100% owned private fund management entity in China. The news comes more than five years after the WUFI was formed in December 2016. The entity is based in Shanghai and currently has two full-time staff, along with registered capital of 10.5 million US dollars. This brings the number of foreign-owned private fund managers to 35 at time of recording, who collectively have launched 184 products and manage assets of 58.5 billion renminbi, a drop in the ocean compared to their domestic counterparts. Of the foreign-owned entities, only that controlled by Bridgewater Associates, an American investment management firm, had assets under management in excess of 10 billion renminbi, a figure it reached in December last year. AXA IM also has a QDLP WUFI in Shanghai, enabling it to raise domestic funds for offshore investment via the QDLP cross-border scheme, along with its fund management company joint venture with Shanghai Pudong Development Bank. With only four foreign-owned private fund managers approved in China over 2021, 
AXA IM's license issuance may kick off another round of approvals in China. Next up, Ignites Asia reports, citing unnamed sources, that Neuberger Berman and Fidelity, a US asset manager and an international investment company headquartered in the UK respectively, may soon receive their public fund licenses. Following reports, they had been visited by Chinese regulators in order to carry out on-site inspections, part of the process for receiving a public fund license in China. Follow-up checks to address any outstanding issues may be completed by the end of June. Both firms already received permission to commence building out their retail fund management entities back in 2021, though lockdowns and other COVID-19-related matters delayed the on-site inspections. Once they are successful, they will join BlackRock as the only foreign firms to have completed their on-site regulatory checks and will be free to commence with launching products. Moving on, top private funds in China are offering graduates annual salaries of up to 800,000 renminbi as the industry suffers from talent shortages as reported by the Securities Times. The move comes amid regulatory developments designed to stem the flow of fund managers from fund management companies to private funds, along with the economic impact of lockdowns and the wider fallout from COVID-19. Whilst the job market in China is adversely affected and private funds are seeing an increase in applications, the top players are increasing their salaries to compete for the best talent on offer. China's private fund sector now employs a reported 200,000 staff, and starting salaries range from 300,000 renminbi to 800,000 for top candidates. In addition to salaries, successful candidates may be offered local hukou, residency permits, in China's first-tier cities, giving them and their families access to local services. Next up, Ignites Asia reports that Chinese regulators have updated the requirements for private funds, including the demand that firms refrain from using, quote, misleading phrases, end quote, pertaining to the naming of funds, along with increasing the amount of disclosures made. These revisions come two years after the Asset Management Association of China, China's fund management industry body and quasi-regulator, first introduced information checking on private fund managers back in April 2020. The revisions, which will come into effect on September 3 this year, signify the first time that AMAC has released unique fund application checklists for private equity and venture capital firms, as well as private fund management entities. Terms which are deemed undesirable include safe, risk aversion, principal guaranteed, sure win, high returns, no risk, strongest, industry leading, and 500 times, among other terms and phrases. The checklists for both private fund groups cover nine areas. Basic information of the asset manager, mechanisms for various risk management and information disclosure matters, licensing details, checking on the integrity of senior management, and financial statements, among others. The revisions continue a trend of Chinese regulators exerting pressure on Chinese private funds regarding the misreporting of fund statistics. Moving on. Reuters reports that ASIFMA, an independent Asian securities and financial markets trade association, believes China's proposed cybersecurity rules for financial institutions could leave foreign financial firms operating in the Middle Kingdom vulnerable 
to hacking and other risks. The draft measures released by CSRC, China's main securities regulator, on April 29 are attempting to make it mandatory for investment banks, asset managers, and futures companies operating in China to share data with CSRC, allow regulator-led testing, and help establish a centralized data backup center. In a letter to CSRC dated 27 May 2022, ASIFMA expressed concern from itself and its members pertaining to the anticipated risks of sharing sensitive information and data. Specifically, the association highlighted that the measures would lead to financial firms being made more vulnerable to, quote, hackers and other bad actors, end quote. ASIFMA has recently been very assertive against proposed Chinese regulatory measures, pushing back against proposed changes to offshore listings of Chinese companies, as covered in previous episodes, in addition to their recent stance against the cybersecurity draft measure. Whether this stance leads to meaningful gains for their members remains to be seen. Moving on, Citic Securities, a Chinese full-service investment bank, has been ranked China's top brokerage for 2021 by the Chinese Securities Association, an industry association as reported by the South China Morning Post. With total assets of 1.28 trillion renminbi, it led its peers across China's 117-strong brokerage industry, with the next highest recording total assets of 806.7 billion renminbi. Citic also led the industry in terms of revenue and net profit, amounting to 76.5 billion renminbi and 23.1 billion renminbi respectively. Next up, Caixin reports that, following four years of regulatory reform, China's trust companies are slowly regaining their footing, with many reinventing themselves by reducing exposure to risky investments and focusing on more service-orientated wealth management operations. Some are even exploring asset securitization and proffering services targeted at charitable and family trusts. Following various crackdowns on shadow banking and the channeling business, whereby trusts would channel funds from investment products to banks who would take over their management and bear the risks associated, in addition to some high-profile collapses, such as with Anshin Trust and Sichuan Trust, the firms which have survived appear to have emerged stronger than ever. The size of the financing trust business, driven by demand for capital and loans, declined to 3.5 trillion renminbi at the end of 2021, a year-on-year decline of 26.3%, whereas the investment trust business segment, driven by investors' demand for assets and investment products, has grown to 8.5 trillion renminbi, a 31.9% increase over 2021. How this often overlooked segment of China's asset and wealth management space continues to grow will be interesting to see unfold. And now, on to China fund news. Equities exchange traded funds in China have seen assets drop by nearly 60 billion renminbi, or 5.36%, in the year to May, with the 629-strong product universe having total market capitalization of 1.01 trillion renminbi. Despite this drop, Chinese investors appear to be following their international counterparts and are buying the dip, with inflows over the same period reaching 150 billion renminbi, across 178 billion new shares created. Some industry players report that this indicates a sign of the resilience and popularity of ETFs, 
with investors increasing exchange-traded fund holdings at lower valuations to boost the equity's exposure. Following the success of the latest batch of interbank funds, as covered in earlier episodes, regulators have given approval for a fifth batch of the currently popular product to be launched, with four fund management companies receiving approval on 29 May, with the earliest product expected to be launched on June 8. The four successful fund managers were reportedly in the first batch of 12 applicants from October 2021, though they had missed out on prior rounds of issuance. The recent approval takes the product universe to 27 funds, each with a different manager, and brings the number of issuances to four in less than two months. The interbank products have been a rare spot of positivity among Dower fund sales, with seven of the 19 products launched or in fundraising since April 13, hitting their ceiling of 10 billion RMB during their public offerings. Available data indicate that products from the first four launches boast assets in excess of 100 billion RMB in initial assets. The success of the products has prompted regulators to tighten rules regarding their marketing, with fund firms no longer able to claim that they are currency alternatives or cash management strategies. Further, the historical rate of return on the underlying index of the product cannot be referred to in marketing materials, and risk fluctuations in the product's net asset value must also be explicit to investors. With regards to ESG funds, China's ESG funds are also enjoying a period of success, with 160 funds containing aggregate assets under management of circa 230 billion RMB, up from 184 billion RMB in June 2021, with 14 funds launched in the year to May 27. Fundraising during launches over 2022 has reflected the wider fund industry, with only three of the 14 funds raising assets in excess of 1 billion RMB. However, the aggregate fundraising across all 14 funds stands at 7 billion RMB, 60% higher than the same period last year. The funds largely cater towards China's carbon and sustainability goals. Several QDII products with an investment focus on oil, gas, and gold have seen their net asset value grow by up to 70% over the year, even as most QDII products see their net assets lose value. Of the 403 registered QDII funds, only 63 have seen their net asset values increase, with 21 all investing in oil, gas, and gold, seeing their NAV surge by over 20%. Finally, as fund managers anticipate renewed interest in equities products, they are launching substantial numbers of equities funds, with 8 of the 20 funds fundraising over the first week of June being equities products, and another 5 being mixed funds. The launch of equities funds over fixed income, which have dominated launches the last few months in the face of market volatility, potentially point to a return in animal spirits among Chinese investors. So, that is it for the week of June 6 through 10. From our perspective, certainly the renewed interest that we're seeing from foreign asset managers and financial institutions entering China is good. If we see an increase in the number of licenses issued to foreign financial institutions by Chinese regulators, that would certainly be seen as a positive by the market. And if the COVID-19 strategies that China is currently pursuing 
And if the lockdowns that are being implemented in several cities are rescinded, then there should be some strong activity in that space. In terms of the November event in Hong Kong being put on to help reassert and reestablish the territory's role as an international financial center, certainly the timing around the Hong Kong Sevens will definitely be of help. And if the event transpires, it will be interesting to see what the feedback from participants and the organizers is in that regard. Finally, the St. James Place survey regarding the sandwich generation in Hong Kong was interesting as this is something that has been prevalent across several Western markets for the last few years. So it's interesting that this is just starting to be viewed in Asian retirement surveys and other reports on the retirement space across APAC. However, those are just our views. Let us know your thoughts in the comments below and if there were any developments or key headlines you think we should have included, but we didn't. If you enjoyed listening to us, thank you very much. Do give us a like and share with other people you think may be interested. If you didn't enjoy this episode, thank you very much for sticking around this long, and we hope you tune in next time for the next weekly update. From all of us at Three Lions Asset Wealth Management Advisory, thank you very much for joining in. We hope to catch you next time.